Hi, this is Mark Brady. I'm the pastor at Anchor Faith Church in Valdosta, Georgia. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast today. We believe it will bless you and minister to you. I get ready to receive a word from God. Holy, holy, holy. John chapter 6. We began last week in this idea, this thought that that God is God does not need a lot. That in his greatness and in his goodness, what, he's, what he ends up asking for and, and making a demand of in our lives is actually probably far less than, than we intended or thought that we had to give. We started with this thought that God can always start with what's small. God will always start with what seems insignificant to us, maybe even insufficient to us. But that's where God has always began, and that's what he's always, this is the template and the model um, that he has followed throughout his word. And many times we come with this idea that he needs something great for us, or he needs something great from us. He needs something, you know, that is huge and massive and gets the attention of everyone around you and is just this this massive step of obedience. Sometimes we feel like we're taking steps like this and he's just asking for this. We saw last week with a man named Naaman, a man that was of great reputation, a man that was uh, a man of greatness, a man that had conquered and achieved many great things in his life, a valiant warrior, it says. When he needed something from God, He expected to have to produce or go through these big, massive steps. He intended to bring all of his greatness and all of his achievement and all of his goodness. How many of you know that all of our greatness compared to God's, just the small amount of God's goodness doesn't even compare, right? If we, if we took all of the great things, all of the right things, all of the good things that we've done or accumulated or accomplished over our lives, it would still, it's, the Bible says that our righteousness is as filthy rags, our righteousness. Now, that's not to belittle us and that's not to mean, to demean us, but that's to put us in our place in a sense that it's not our goodness and greatness and achievement that get that gets God's attention. It's our obedience. Naaman came with all of his money. He had all these bags of silver, all these bags of gold. He had his chariots and his warriors and his mighty men with him. He came with a letter from the king. And then he came, those were the external, those were the tangible things he came with, but he even came with a great expectation. Because the Bible lets us in on what he was telling himself. He said, I know. That if I go see this great man of God and I bring him all these things, I know that he's going to come out and he's going to wave his hand over my body where the sickness is. He's going to wave his hand and that he's going to cure me. So he has this great expectation. He has this great idea how it's going to play out in his mind. He comes with all of his goodness as much as he can accumulate, as much as he can bring along. But the man of God sends a servant, right? Sends his assistant out to meet this great man. And the instruction is to go and dip seven times in the dirty Jordan River. That's the instruction. And Naaman walks away angry, like a lot of times we do, because God doesn't meet our great expectation He doesn't answer our great, he gives us a small step of obedience and Naaman walks away in a rage, goes the opposite direction and thank God his servant stopped him and said, hey, if he would have asked you to to do a great thing, wouldn't you have done it? So how much more when he just simply asks you to dip seven times in the dirty Jordan River? 
If he would have asked you to do this mighty thing, we have this idea in our heads that when God calls us, God assigns us, and God begins to work in our lives, it's going to be some great, and and we think that he's going to bring us before thousands, and maybe he's calling you before tens. Come on. We think that he wants us to rule and reign over millions of dollars, and maybe he wants you to reign over the hundreds that are in your account now. We always picture ourselves doing something great, but we don't recognize that it's the small steps along the way that get us to greatness. See, in these last days, the reason why we're going in this direction is because in these last days, you know, the, the Lord spoke to me a while back. I was ministering on David. Many of you may remember around Easter time, I was ministering on David, ministering on the anointing and what it means to be anointed, ministering on Um, assignment and purpose. And if you go back to that story in 1 Samuel chapter 16, where the prophet Samuel goes to choose a new king over Israel because King Saul had failed so miserably, nobody in that room believed David could do it. Not even the prophet himself. His dad didn't. He didn't even bother bringing him, and he knew the prophet was coming to anoint a king. We learn later that his brothers, Eliab specifically, looked down on him. When he showed up on the battlefield facing Goliath, it was Eliab that looked him in the face and said, why are you even out here? And who did you leave those few sheep with? What are you doing? You have no business being out here. And he watched him get anointed. And it made me, it challenged me to ask this question. When God picks the next David, will I overlook it too? Will I miss it too? Will I reject the one God picks because I don't think they're qualified? I don't think they measure up? I I believe in these last days, God is going to raise up some people that are going to surprise us. He's going to call some people that's going to surprise us. Maybe that's you. Maybe you're the one that will surprise your family, surprise your coworkers, surprise those even closest to you. But I believe in these last days that it's going to be the ones that nobody thought he would use that are going to usher in this last day revival and the last day return of Jesus himself. I believe that God is still using this template of picking the Abrahams and the Moseses and the, and, and the Davids and the Isaiahs and the Jeremiahs and the the murderous Sauls, and he's going to turn them into Pauls, and they're going to usher in a move of God that this planet has never seen, and I do not want to be the one on the sidelines saying, it can't happen. I don't want to be the one found with with my arms crossed saying, can't believe that person has a microphone in his hand. I can't believe that person has that much influence. I can't believe somebody would allow that individual that much influence in someone else. I can't believe that God would, and I do not want to be an Eliab to the next David. Hello. I think we're moving in the days where we're going to have to understand God's selection process. We're going to have to get in tune with who God is using, who God is choosing, who God is selecting, who God is rejecting. He rejected Saul. He rejected Eliab. Even though the prophet Samuel said, this certainly must be the next chosen king of Israel. God said, no, I reject that one. Checks off all of man's boxes. But I've got some boxes that are unchecked. I've got some things that I'm looking for. I want to be the David. But I also don't want to refuse and reject what God selects. And just as we learned last week, I don't want to call small what God calls big. Dipping in the water seven times was no small step to God. It was the biggest, greatest thing Naaman could do at that time to receive his miracle. But to Naaman, 
It was small. It was minuscule. It was insignificant. It was insufficient to provide the miracle he was believing for and the, 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 what he was expecting to receive from God. But in these last days, I'm telling you, it's going to be what man calls small that God calls big, and it's going to be what man calls big that God calls, uh, that's not it. That's small in my eyes. That, that's small in my eyes. That, that's insignificant. What you call significant, I call insignificant. And what I call significant is what you need to call significant. I want to take you to another passage here in John chapter 6 that will help us understand this. Continue to drive this home a little bit. John chapter 6 and verse 1. It says, after this, Jesus crossed over to the far side of the Sea of Galilee, also known as the Sea of Tiberias. A huge crowd, everyone say huge. A huge crowd kept following him wherever he went. Because, watch this, because they saw his miraculous signs as he healed the sick. Now I want to stop right there and just mention this because this is coming and we need to be ready that when God's glory, God's power begins to show up in manifestation and is on display, there will be those that come to follow. It will draw a crowd. It will. I don't know who said it, but I know a minister uh, uh, of old said it, put it this way, that miracles are the dinner bell of salvation. Miracles, signs, and wonders are what draw men to the goodness of God, or what draw when God is glorified, when he is exalted, when he is lifted up, when his power is put on display. It will draw people. It will draw people to a point of decision. It will draw people to a point of, of becoming uh, engaged and interacting with God himself. The manifestations, signs, wonders, the power of God in display. Let me tell you, it's not for yesterday. They are still for today. God is still healing. God is still restoring. God is still casting out demons. God is still setting people free. God is still healing the sick, open blind eyes, opening deaf ears. Don't buy the lie that he's not in that business anymore. Don't buy the lie that God isn't up to delivering us even physically, mentally. Uh, uh, this is not just come and pray a prayer and then one day get taken up out of this messed up world. God wants to manifest heaven right here on earth. And when he does, miracles, signs, and wonders are the norm. What we call a miracle is normal to God. That's, that's where he lives. That's where he operates. We, when we use the word miracle, we use it in something that is out of the ordinary, don't we? We use it in something that is not typical. But I'm telling you today, the day is coming. Miracles will be the norm once again in the church of the living God. Miracles will be typical. Miracles will be ordinary. Miracles, signs, and wonders will happen on a regular basis basis for those that believe in their God and believe and know who they are in him. It's time we get back to expecting to see miracles. And I, we got to get to a place where I'm surprised if it doesn't happen. Are you with me? We got to move to a place, the church of God. If we are here to bind and loose on earth what is bound and loosed in heaven, it's time to change our perspective. It's time to quit being surprised when we see God do something, when we see God uh, move in someone's life. We'll rejoice, we'll give him glory, we'll give him honor, but we've got to start having this position of, I knew it would happen. I, that's, that's what I expected to take place. Some of us get so taken back when a miracle does show up, it's like, where were you at? Where were you at anyways? And thank God for his grace and his mercy that even without us expecting, sometimes he'll move. But it's time for the church to get to a place where this stuff becomes normal again. 
You want to talk about a new norm? I'll give you a new norm. Miracles, signs, and wonders are going to be the new norm. Deaf ears opening is the new norm. Lame people walking is the new norm. Marriages restored is the new norm. Children coming back is the new norm. Righteousness and holiness is the new norm. It's not just for the few on the outskirts that are the old timers that don't change. No, it's time that this spreads worldwide. It's time this spreads beyond the four walls of the church. It's time that we step up and boldly expect and proclaim the goodness of God. And quit treating the Bible like a history book that happened one point, one time, at one day. And man, oh, I bet those days were so nice. We ain't seen nothing yet. The best is yet to come. Jesus didn't go through all he went through so we could sit back and read about it and talk about it in our churches and go out and be no different. That doesn't require a drop of blood being shed. That doesn't require a a, a crown of thorns and stripes on your back. He didn't do all that so we can continue to wallow in our sickness and our pain and our disease. It's time to stand on the word of God and claim what is rightfully ours. I'll keep going till you get with me. This has got to be the expectation. This has got to be the norm for the church. Because if it continues to surprise us, what do you think we got to give to the world? If we hardly expect it to happen, where do we think the church is, the world's going to be? Now, the church, this is stuff that everywhere Jesus went, a huge crowd kept following him wherever he went because they saw his miraculous signs as he healed the sick. And let me tell you, when they start following you, you better have something to give away. When they start walking through these doors, they start filling up these seats, we better be ready to give something away. Are you with me? You better be ready to make a sacrifice. Be ready to invest and pour into the people that are coming to see on display what you know to be real in your life. A huge crowd kept following him wherever he went. Because they saw his miraculous signs. We have t-shirts out there right now that say, I do go to that church. We are that church. And I'm telling you right now, we're going to continue to be that church in this town. We are that. You go to that church, we go to that church. That church that believes in signs and wonders. That church that is spirit-filled and prays in other tongues. That church that expects the, the, the kingdom to come through us, not without us. We are that church. You start to get a reputation a little bit. Don't be surprised. The problem was is the people that followed Jesus for his signs eventually abandoned him for his significance. The people that followed Jesus just for his signs eventually left him because of his real purpose, because of his real plan, because of his real mission, because his mission wasn't to heal the sick. His mission wasn't to deliver the lost. Jesus' mission wasn't to die on a cross so you could one day go to heaven. It wasn't. It's not why he came to this planet. Just so you could pray a prayer and get zapped up to heaven one day. That wasn't his mission. But because people mistook his mission, they wanted wanted the greatest product with as little investment. Hello? So they came and followed him and watched him and, 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 and stayed with him for all the signs. But then when he really started making a demand on their life, When he started talking like foxes have holes and birds have nests. When he started saying, if you want any part of me, you got to take up your cross and follow me too. When he started talking like that, he's losing them left and right. This guy's a lunatic. This guy's crazy. And they eventually kill him. He was followed by thousands, by multitudes at the height of his ministry and went to the cross all by himself. 
because they weren't really following him. I mean, in today's day and age, they press a button that says follow, press a button that says like, but they're not really interested in being a part of the mission he was a part of in bringing the kingdom of God to the earth. So they're following him for his signs. And Jesus climbed a hill and sat down with his disciples around him. It was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration. Jesus soon saw a huge crowd of people. Everyone say huge crowd. A huge crowd of people coming to look for him. And turning to Philip, he asked a really weird question. Where can we buy bread to feed all these people? Where can we buy bread to feed all these people? All these people that are just merely following him for his signs. All these people that are just merely following him for his demonstrations. And and really, uh, you know, just to break it down, for entertainment. Some of, their, some of them there are there because of their own needs. Some of them are there because they need a touch from God. And this man, uh, and, and look, I'm telling you right now, when, when you provide what people need and they can't find it anywhere else, they will follow you. They might reject you until you have what they need. Right? I mean, when you're desperate... You may have laughed at that person. You may have called out that person before. But then when you know they have what you need, that's where you're going. Are we going to be those people? They come find us. They come follow us. They come and say, man, I've heard you talk about this God. I've heard you talk about church. I've heard you talk about healing. I've, I've seen you pray over your food. I've seen this. I've seen that. And, and I'm going through something, and I, I just have an idea. You've got what I need. I just got an idea. There's just something that tells me that you can help me with my problem. Are we ready for those people to come? So Jesus sits these people down. And he turns to his disciples, and he takes on a burden here that wasn't even his burden to take. This wasn't his problem. He didn't invite all these people to follow him. He didn't request. He wasn't holding a conference. Uh, You know, he wasn't charging. You know, these people didn't register for a conference, and now he feels obligated to feed all these people. You know, uh, when we do that, you know, we put up a registration and then we tell you how much it's going to cost, and then we tell you what the options are, the menu options, and then you select a, a menu option, or are we going to feed you? He's not obligated to any of that. They came to follow him because of his signs. They're not even really following him. In essence, he could have turned and said, you know, I'll, I'll take care of these 12 right here because they've paid the price. They've come to follow me. The rest of this crew, you're on your own. You're on your own. I don't know where you're going to get food. But he turns to his own disciple, turns to Philip. And he asks the question, he says, where can we buy bread to feed all these people? Now look at verse 6. He was testing Philip, for he already knew what he was going to do. You know what I love about Jesus and what I love about ministry and purpose of God is he includes us even though he doesn't have to. And sometimes we take that for granted. Sometimes we take the fact that he doesn't have to use us. He doesn't have to incorporate us at all. In fact, sometimes I think to myself, God, you could do this way better than I could. And if, if, if you could get my stubborn self out of the way, you could probably do it a lot. It'd probably be much less of a burden on you to just do it without me. But that's not God's plan. That's not how God operates. 
God has continuously, from day one, incorporated and involved mankind in his process of getting heaven in the earth. He always has and he always will. When he spoke man into existence in Genesis chapter 1, he said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule. Let them reign. Let them have dominion over the earth. You know what he just did when he made that statement? You might not even realize this. He obligated himself to incorporate man in anything he does in this environment for the rest of time. Oh, but God, he's a king. He can do whatever he wants. No, he can't. No, he cannot. One thing God cannot do is go back on his word. He cannot do it and he will not do it. See, when we have this idea, when we have an an unbiblical, undoctrinal thinking of what God can do and what God can't do, then what it ultimately, usually where it ultimately stems from is removing ourselves from the equation, moving any level of responsibility, removing any level of incorporation. People today want God to do great things. They just don't want to be a part of the process through how God does those great things. And so we create new doctrines that remove us. We say things like, well, if it's the Lord's will. The reason why you make that statement is because you don't want to be a part of the process anymore. You don't want him to incorporate you. So you want to say things like, well, Lord, if it's your will, because that doesn't require me to have any faith, have any believing, have any action behind my faith. I don't have to be the one looking stupid. I don't have to get out on the front lines. I don't have to say things that are ridiculous. I don't have to look crazy in front of other people that might call me out. God, if it's your will, and then if it doesn't happen according to the way the word is, then I can point back and say, well, mankind today is more and more looking for ways to remove ourselves from the plan of God in the earth today. And here, Jesus makes a statement, even though he already knows what he's going to do. Talks to Philip, and he says, where can we buy What's he doing? He's putting the burden of the people on the disciples. And today, God is doing the same thing with the world. He's looking at the church saying, what are you going to do about it? Where are you going to buy bread? Where are you going to find the food that they need? We're not going to obligate the world to find it on their own. Quit pointing your fingers at the world. Quit highlighting their sin. Quit rejecting them because they don't fit your boxes. Start finding a way to reach the lost. Start finding a way to be revival. Start finding a way to be sustenance to a a world that is lost and dying and going to hell. The harvest is plentiful. The field is ripe, but the laborers are few. But yet he still demands labor. He still demands that the church gets off of their comfortable chairs in their sanctuaries and goes into the world and buys them food, even though we might not be obligated. He will find a way to incorporate you in the healing process and the bringing of revival in the world. And it's not just getting on your knees in a prayer closet saying, oh, God, bring revival. It's learning to be a part of the process. And if we won't be a part of the process, we ultimately are a part of the problem. A lazy church is a part of the problem. A weak church is a part of the problem. And we continue to dumb down our theology and continue to dumb down what we preach and teach because we don't want to make people responsible for what the Word tells us is our role, our assignment, and our job in the earth today. And it cannot happen anymore. We cannot dumb down the word of God to what makes us comfortable. 
we rise up to the conviction of the word of God that strengthens us and empowers us to be a part of the process. Ultimately, in this passage, Jesus is not just interested in multiplying bread. He wants to multiply disciples. And so he's teaching them a principle in the process. Because verse 6 says he was testing Philip. That word test means to prove. That word test means to prove. When you take a test, you are proving that you have acquired a level of knowledge. When you go through a test, you are proving. See, a lot of times we think of tests as negative. We think of tests as something that is coming against us. No, my friend, I'm here to tell you today, tests move you forward, not keep you back. Tests advance you. They don't restrict you. Everything you have passed through in life, whether it's school, whether it's a promotion, whether it's finance, everything you've passed through, you were tested in the previous season to, pr- to prove you learned and gained and acquired what you needed so you could go to the next one. You don't go to 10th grade if you don't pass 9th grade. And when we pass people that haven't been tested, then we can't get bent out of shape when they break under the new pressure in the next season because they didn't acquire what they needed in the last season. This is why some of us get stuck or feel stuck. This is why some of us feel like we're going in circles because we, we, we reject the test. We resist it. We don't want to be tested in any arena of life. We want to be promoted without testing. We want to pass on to the next level without proving that we've acquired what we needed in the last level. Jesus says, this is a test to you to see if you've acquired my heart for people, to see if you've acquired how I see people, to see if you've acquired my, 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 my awareness to the needs of the world. And if your response is, we don't have enough or we can't do or, 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 or that's not my problem. I don't feel obligated. I'm not responsible. Man, it's time for the church to start feeling responsible for the garbage that's happening in the world today. It's time to step up and say, not on my watch. Not while I'm here. Nothing should happen in the earth today without the church's permission. Nothing. Sickness doesn't have the right to rule when we have the answer called healing. Anxiety and depression doesn't have a right to rule when we have an answer called peace. We know the prince of peace. We know the God of peace. Brokenness doesn't have a right to rule when we serve a God of restoration. It's time this church step up and rise, just as Jesus did in this passage and say, how are we going to feed them? Where are we going to buy the bread? Where are we going to get the sustenance? They have something. We have something they need. How are we going to get it to them? He turns to Philip, testing him because he already knew what he was going to do, but yet he incorporates him anyways. Jesus, you already knew what you were going to do. What do you need Philip for? What do you need his doubt and unbelief for? What do you need his stubbornness and unwillingness for? Because it's not just about feeding the hungry. It's about raising up a church that sees a need and meets a need. Sees a need and meets a need. There's a principle he's trying to draw out of his disciples through this story, through this opportunity. What Philip might have thought was an obstacle, Jesus calls an opportunity. This is an opportunity. And he's not just interested in the feeding of the 5,000. He's even more interested in the development of the 12 behind him. Because he knows, I'm going to be passing on soon. Most of the book of John 
was written within the last six months of Jesus' ministry on this planet. We're at the end of things. We are bringing this thing to a close. We are coming to a conclusion very quickly. He knows I'm going to the cross soon. He knows I'm ascending to the Father soon. He knows that my spirit, my Holy Spirit is coming down and going to live in and come upon these individuals. And they're going to have to get the heart behind what I'm doing. They're going to have to understand the principles. We're not just doing miracles and signs and wonders. We are meeting needs of a lost and dying world. Get my heart. See them as I see them. He's testing them. And many of us are in this same scenario. It's not about the problem that's in front of you. It's about what God is trying to develop within you. Quit resisting the test. Quit resisting. Quit pushing back. Quit saying, no, it's not my time. Quit saying, that's not my problem. And start stepping into what God is calling you to. But now we get a glimpse in what these steps look like. Verse 7, Philip replied, even if we worked for months, we wouldn't have enough, everyone say enough, money to feed them. Philip replied, even if we work, if we strive, if we pressed for months, we wouldn't have enough money to feed them. Last week we said this, we said, Many times we call small what God calls great. But this week, this is what the Lord wants to show us. What if we call small what God calls enough? Enough. You know, last week I gave you my examples of all the different cities I've lived in in the last 20 years or so coming from a, a city that's now the 12th largest city in the United States, Fort Worth, Texas, that I thought when I was living there was small compared to Dallas, Texas, this even bigger area. And then I go to Tulsa, Oklahoma, makes Fort Worth look large, makes Tulsa look small. I go to St. Augustine, makes Tulsa look large, St. Augustine looks small. Come to Valdosta, makes St. Augustine look large. Makes Valdosta look small. But really the question that we have to answer is not what are we calling small. What are we calling enough? Because enough determines if something is small or not. Now this issue of enough, the title of my message today is enough is enough. You ever said that? You ever? We usually don't say that about something positive. It's usually, you know, we, we don't, you know, win the lottery and say, enough is enough. No. We say that about arguments. We say that about our patience. Enough is enough. I've, right? Come on, we say it about things. Well, God is wanting to turn that around today. He's wanting us to look at enough and say, it's enough. It's enough to accomplish what God has called. But here's the issue. Here's the template we're going to see. Philip replied, even if we worked for months, we wouldn't have enough money to feed them. Here's the key. Typically, when God calls us to greatness, when God begins to move you into a new season, when God begins to pull on what he's put in you, when he starts to make a demand of your life, when he looks at you and says, how are you? I mean, how many times do we get in scenarios where we're the ones hungry and God is saying, how are you going to feed them? Where feeding yourself is a byproduct. But typically, what are we thinking? Jesus, who are you kidding? They can fend for themselves. I'm looking for the Wendy's right now. I'm looking for the Chick-fil-A out here. Come on, Christian chicken. I'm trying to find sustenance. I'm just trying to get through myself. 
And this is where we're turning this around. We've been talking about this the last several weeks, that the church has to get to a place where we're not constantly trying to meet our own needs. We have to become sufficient and uh, 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 adequate in and of ourselves so that we can start seeing the world the way God sees the world. We have to start getting ourselves in a place, in a healthy place, getting the healing we need, getting the restoration we need, getting the, 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 the help we need, so that I mean, walking in perpetual sin is not going to put you in a posture to be able to help others get out of theirs. Are you with me? It's a righteous church, a holy church, a one that is called to be the spotless lamb of God, the bride of Christ, the body of Christ. That's what God is calling on to reach the world. And if we're constantly trying, if we're taking our, 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 our source that we're supposed to be delivering to the world and eating it before we ever get it to them. If you're the only one growing off of your time in church, come on, hello now. If you're the only, if you're just in here today getting something for yourself, I need this, Jesus. I need that, Jesus. I need a word, Jesus. When's the last time you came to the church and tried to get a word for someone else? When's the last time you said, I got to be in that house because if I'm not there, so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so isn't going to get what they need from me. Because so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so is not in this seat today. You are. Jesus is trying to shift our perspective. That doesn't mean we won't have our own challenges. That doesn't mean we won't have our own issues. But you've got to get to a point that when financial stress comes into your life, you can rest in what God has already done for you because you know, and you quit responding to financial stress like they respond to financial stress. I don't get a lot of amens on that because we're all still working through that. But I'm telling you where our church is going. And we'll be here to help you. We'll be here to guide you. But I will also be here to tell you, now, we've walked this road before. We've been down this path before. We've covered this. But you know that you're the head and not the tail. You're above and not beneath. You know who your sustainer is. You know who your God is. You know who your Lord is. You start walking in faith. You start standing on his word because there's a world out there that doesn't know, and they need you to step up to the plate for them. You know where your healing comes from. Now come and I'll pray a prayer of agreement with you, but I'm not praying for healing for over your body again. We've covered it. It's done. It's been done for 2,000 years. Now it's time to stand in what we know the word of God tells us to do. I'm not going quit, to quit. I'm not going to keep treating your condition as a brand new condition every time you bring it to the plate. I'm going to start reminding you of what we've already covered because none of that changed. None of this changed. I think there are churches in America today that intend on keeping their people sick. Broken. They talk to them like they're sick and they're broken. They do. I've unfollowed about 13 of them in the last 12 months. Because I can't take it anymore. It's garbage. If you're, if you're feeling down and out, if you're feeling like this season's overwhelming, why you got us so in tune to our feelings? Why you got us always so inclined to how I feel about everything? You ever notice we don't talk about feelings at Anchor Faith Church? And I'm not denying you have them. I'm telling you that you will never overcome and conquer your feelings if you continue to get the spotlight and attention to them. At some point, you're going to have to rise above how you feel. At some point, I don't feel like stepping out of the boat, but he told me to come and step out of the boat. I'm stepping out of the boat, and I'm going to be able to walk on that water when I get out because he said the words come. And that's what the word says. It's like a doctor that doesn't want their patient getting well because they keep getting that check every month they come and check on them. Keep you perpetually, I'll get you just close enough to you, you feel like you're getting better, that you come need me in another 30 days. 
Look, I'm not insecure. I have, no, I, I have no problem training you and teaching you everything I know and everything the word of God shows us to get you to walk in full health and full liberty and full freedom in everything God has called you because you will always need a pastor and you will always need a local church and that is never gonna go away. You're never gonna get so spiritual, so good, so doctrinal, so biblical that you're not gonna need me in your life. So I'm going to teach you everything this word shows. Just like Paul said, I withheld nothing from you. I gave you the full counsel of the word. Your blood is on my life. And I will stand before Jesus for what I give you and what I withhold from you. And everything I withhold from you is an area I can expect you to live defeated in in your life. But no, we're, 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 we're not going to keep this perpetual state of brokenness, this perpetual state of, I just feel like just, just the weight of the world's on me. It's not. Cast your cares on him because he cares for you. If you feel like the weight of the world is on you, it's because you're carrying something he never told you to carry in the first place. I mean, either we're going to raise up a church that's going to change the world and turn the world upside down or we're not. This is just a social club. This is where you just come and you give your, your, your little weekly tithe and come hear three scriptures and sing three songs and make a few friends and give you something to do on a Sunday morning so you feel good about your life and then go about your day. Or this is a place that changes lives so changed lives can change lives. Hope-filled lives can bring hope to a world, a hopeless world. Healed people, healing people. And Jesus is multiplying himself. He's testing Philip in an area he doesn't even need to incorporate him. I've already got this thing figured out, but I'm going to use you anyways. And he says, how are you going to buy the food? And Philip's response is just like ours. So many times when God calls us, it's immediate. Our first response is inadequacy. insufficiency. Jesus, if, if we weren't for months, one passage says 200 in area, that's 200 days wait. He, it, 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 the, the, the passage literally reads this way. If we worked for 200 days straight and gave all of that towards feeding these people, we would only feed them a little. It wouldn't even be enough to feed them and really change them, is what he's saying. It wouldn't even make any impact. It'd probably actually make us look worse. Like we're, we serve a God of not enough, but at least he gives you a little bit. We serve the God of crumbs and scraps. But we do the same thing. We respond just like Philip. You might have the question of, that's not my problem. Why are you incorporating me? Why should I feel obligated to meet the needs of a world that's lost and dying and going to hell anyways? Doesn't think in line with the word, doesn't even think, doesn't care about God. Why is that my problem? And he says, no, I'm going to incorporate you. You're part of my process. I know they're just out here just to see the signs, but where are you going to get the food? And then your next response is, I can't do all that. I can't meet that need. And we immediately go right back to calling something small that God calls great. What, what difference could I make? What difference could I make? I mean, if I, if I was striving and pressing and just straining with all that I have, <laughs> what difference would it make? I think of people like Chris Musgrove. Y'all know Chris Musgrove in our church. Just recently wrote a book. And he asked me about a hundred times, read my book, read my book, read my book. He wanted me to read it and then put some kind of little forward thing or something on his book. I would have read it anyways, but he just, 
Hey, did you read my book? Did you read my book? You got no book? But when I sat down and started reading that book, I couldn't put it down. If you haven't read the book or picked up the book, we've got it in our resources area right out here. You've, you won't be able to put it down. Because it's literally what I'm reading to you today. One small step after one small step after one small step after one. I'm telling you, when that man gets to heaven, he's going to know everybody there. He already knows everybody on this planet. He's going to know everybody at that planet. And he doesn't just know them. They will come up to him and they will tell him the impact he's made on their life. And 90% of them, he won't even realize he made that impact. But for fear of taking the small step, we start thinking insufficiency, inadequacy. Not enough. And today's the day we stop calling small what God calls enough. We wouldn't have enough money to feed them. The enemy operates in this arena. Because if the enemy can change your definition of enough, He'll change the action and the behavior that follows it. All of us in this room, myself included, failed to step out because we felt like it was not enough. And the enemy sold us a lie that it'd be better to give nothing than not enough. The enemy bought us, forced us, and manipulated us into buying into a lie. That no step was better than a small step. And Philip here is coming up with every excuse and every reason not to take the step. Not to move towards what God is, what Jesus is asking him to do in this moment putting a burden on him that feels so great. What was the size of a crowd? The huge crowd. Large. And the enemy gets us in this position of comparison. In verse 8, Andrew, Simon's Peter's brother, spoke up. There's a young boy here with five barley loaves and two fish. Here we go. Watch this. Five loaves and two fish. Here's the statement. But what good is that with this huge crowd? It's immediately what we do. There's two things the enemy wants you to measure what you have against. Two things the enemy wants you to measure what you have against. Number one. He gets you to measure what you have against your challenge. He'll get you to compare what you have, five loaves and two fish, to the large crowd. The huge crowd. I mean, we're talking huge like how Donald Trump would say huge. That huge. I can't say it, so I'm not even going to try but every single one of you are hearing it in your head right now. You're picturing his lips and his hands. You're doing it. What good is that with this huge crowd? Number two, he gets you to compare what you have against what you don't have. We've all done it. As soon as God shows us the little bit that you do have, the enemy starts revealing all that you don't have. You start sounding like Moses at the burning bush. He just received a simple assignment, simple to God, a small step. Go to Pharaoh. Tell him to let my people go. 
He's not telling him to strong arm him. He's not telling him to, to form this large posse and this, this, this big, you know, rebellion and revolution. He's, when God calls you to something, again, the step can seem so small and minuscule and insufficient compared to the challenge that we don't take the step because the challenge is so great. But then the second thing that happens is the enemy starts talking to you about everything you don't have. But here's the thing. God never asks of you what you don't have. What was his response to Moses? Moses, what do you have in your hand? Ah, he does this every time. He does this every time. You better be careful what you're holding on to when you are approaching God or when God is calling you because typically what you're holding on to is the very thing he's going to call you to use. He's going to ask you to put to work. What is that in your hand? A staff. Throw it down on the ground. And he used a staff. A wooden pole that he carried around to assist him in shepherding sheep. Five smooth stones and a sling. A little bit of oil, a little bit of oil in a jar in the house. Come on. God has got in the Bible, God has never once gone to someone and say, tell me what you're missing. Tell me, tell me what we're tell me what we left out. Tell me what you don't have access to right now. That'll help me determine what we do. Not one time can you find record. He always simply asks, what do you have? What do you have? A little bit of oil? A staff in your hand? A slingshot? Five loaves and two fish? Tell me what you got. Let's just start there. Let's just start there. Tell me what you have. Every time. So here's the thing. If the enemy can't keep it from you, he'll get you to think as little of it as possible. See, the enemy messed up when he let you hold that staff. The enemy messed up when he left a little bit of oil in the jar. The enemy messed up when he let you bring the slingshot and five smooth stones to the battlefield. The enemy messed up. When he left a little boy in the, in, in, the, in the huge crowd, he left a little boy with five loaves and two fish. The devil messed up. He's a liar. I said the devil is a liar. And he's, God is taking what you have left over, what you have left, the little bit that is still in your hand. God is saying, that's all I need. He's saying this, enough is enough. He's saying enough is enough. I don't need you to go and buy all the food. I'm just trying to incorporate you. I'm just trying to involve you. I'm inviting you into the process of reaching the world. I am using you for my glory. I'm using you for my return. I'm using you to set the stage for revival. And it's only going to take a little bit to do what I've called you to do. Oh, he, he, he should have taken that five loaves and two fish when he had a chance. He should have taken that marriage and disintegrated it when he had a chance. He should have taken uh, the last little bit of joy you had, and he should have, he should have taken the last little worship team, you better come. He, he, he's taken the, the last little bit of hope you got left. He, he should have taken it all. He should have left you with nothing. But you have something in your hand. You have a staff in your hand. You have a sling in your hand. You have a little bit of joy, a little bit of oil in the jar at home. You have it in your hand. And now he's saying, bring it to me. <laughs> he should have killed you when he had the chance. Should have put you behind bars when he had the chance. Come on. He should have taken away your influence when he had the chance. He should have left. But if God can find you holding on to something, 
just takes five loaves and two fish. Would you stand with me? The story goes on to say, Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks to God, distributed them to the people. Afterward, he did the same with the fish, and they all ate as much as they wanted. He turned not enough into more than enough. Because I serve a God that does exceedingly, abundantly, above all we ask or think. All that I can imagine. That's the God you serve. Quit looking at what you don't have. Quit looking at what you thought you would be by this time in your life. I thought I'd be married. I thought I'd have kids. I thought I'd have that promotion. I thought I'd have this much in the bank. I thought I would do this. I thought I would. Quit looking at what you don't have. Because he's not asking for that. He's only asking for, what do you have? Let's start with that. Let's start with what you have. Tell me what you got. Jesus. I'm almost embarrassed to tell you that just five loaves and two. Have you seen the crowd, Jesus? I didn't ask about the crowd. How much do you have? never changed his model and he's not going to change now. I want to read this to you real quick out of Philippians chapter 2. Guys, I need this in the Amplified. I don't think I gave that to you. Philippians 2 starting with verse 13. This is Paul talking about his ministry. This is Paul talking about how He gave everything he had, laid it all down. I believe it's a glimpse of what Jesus is showing us, what God is demanding of us today in this season. Come on, don't sit on the sidelines with five loaves and two fish. Don't sit on the sidelines with just a little bit of oil in the jar. We value the wrong things in this world. We value the wrong things in this country. It's time to start valuing a little bit. It's time to start saying, it might be small, but it's enough. It's enough. If you can start with that, God, it's all yours. Guys, we do here I am. Here I am. Just a moment. Verse 13. He says, for it is not your strength, But it is God. It is not your strength, but it is God who is effectively at work in you, both to will and to work. That is strengthening, energizing, and creating in you the longing and the ability to fulfill your purpose. Watch this. For his good pleasure. Do everything without murmuring, or here it is, questioning the providence of God. That means his ability to provide. We get into it and we start to question, how's five loaves and two fish going to supply need for a whole group, for a whole crowd, a huge crowd? Verse 15, so that you may prove yourselves to be blameless and guileless, innocent and uncontaminated children of God without blemish in the midst of a morally crooked and spiritually perverted generation among whom you are seen as bright lights, beacons shining out clearly in the world of darkness, holding out and offering to everyone the word of life. So, that whole morally and corrupt uh, and, 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 and uh, perverted generation, he says, we are going to be holding out and offering to all of them the word of life. 
so that in the day of Christ, I will have reason to rejoice greatly because I did not run my race in vain nor labor without result. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith for preaching the message of salvation, still I rejoice. He says, still I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. He says, my life has been poured out as a dream. That means I gave everything I had. It's not a sacrifice until it cuts into what you don't want to give. Sacrifice is not giving the skim of the top. Sacrifice is not giving uh, to uh, ensure no level of discomfort or dissatisfaction. No, he gave, he's writing this from a prison cell. And he said, my life, I have set aside just all that I have, all that I have for the sake of the gospel. Thank you for taking the time to listen to our podcast today. We trust you received a word from God. If you enjoyed this teaching, be sure to subscribe to our podcast in iTunes. By subscribing, you'll be sure to receive a new message every week as soon as they are made available. And if you'd like to learn more about Anchor Faith Church, you can stop by our website at anchorfaithbaldosta.com. There you'll find our locations and service times, ministries that are available for you and your family. You can even give financially in support of the ministry. Thank you again for listening, and we look forward to seeing you next time right here on the Anchor Faith Church podcast.